Hello everyone, this is Lynn Cremando for Yoga You Online, and I'm here today with Shai Sayer. Shai is a 25-year yoga practitioner, a yoga teacher, a teacher trainer, and a yoga therapist. He's the founder, founder and the director of the Tantravaya School of Yoga and Ayurveda. It's a very interesting teacher training because rather than focus on a specific style, uh, his teacher training emphasizes universal principles of alignment within the context of yoga and Ayurveda that you could apply to any pose or any yogic practice, which in his philosophical uh, bent that creates a more well-rounded teacher. We we're going to ask him a little bit more about that in a minute, but for the moment, welcome, Shai. Thank you, Lynn. Pleasure to be here with you, and welcome, everyone. So, Shai, you have a really interesting backstory, if I may say. Thank you. You came into yoga in a somewhat untraditional way, and in the beginning was a bit self-taught until you found a teacher. I'm wondering if you could take us to your background and, and, and your and your journey that got us from there to here. Yes, interesting is a good word for it. Kind of like the dubious blessing, may you live in interesting times. <laughs> uh, it's a very vulnerable thing. Uh, I grew up in Israel and I was surrounded by a pretty great amount of violence as a child. I, uh, there was violence, of course, on the national level and uh, in the streets and even in the home. And at uh, around the age of five, between the ages of five and 14, I escaped into books and musical instruments. Uh, I had a special permit in my elementary school where instead of one book a week from the library, I was allowed up to three books a day. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I started playing the piano and the guitar, um, the church organ, and all of those things really developed my intellect in a very strong way. Um, but I failed or missed the opportunity to include the body and to become embodied. In a sense, that was an escape. Uh, plus all of those things, reading and playing instruments are uh, very much inward and very much rounded uh, and, and inflection. And it meant that by the age of 14, I had a hard time sitting on the ground with my legs straight in front of me, let alone consider something like a forward fold. My luck was that some friends that were preparing for the Israeli army, which I had no intention of joining and never did, but uh, they started running on the beach in our hometown as preparation. And I don't know why, but I went along and it turned out for reasons that I now that I know so much more anatomy, I understand my body is very much built to run. Uh, I loved it. I started running to the next city and back every day on, on the soft sand. And it was one of the only places where I felt really safe and really free. As a result of running, my, my body started, I guess for lack of a better metaphor, talking to me. Uh, no one ever told me about, say, a plant-based diet or, um, or, or how you're supposed to exercise or how to treat your body. But my body was just requesting the running and it was requesting a different diet than I was having than my traditional family diet. Uh, 
And as I was responding, I found more and more empowerment and even growing serenity. And of course, also a lot of interest, a lot of curiosity about the body. Uh, another lucky strike was that I was watching uh, a morning news show on Israeli television, and there was an elderly Israeli couple that had lived in China for many years, and they came back to Israel and were teaching Qigong. At some point, they, they said, uh, stand up at home and join us for a few basic exercises, and I did. And if you can uh, imagine the, the joy and the wonderment of a, a body that has been disembodied, a, a, a mind that has been disembodied, experiencing the body from something like running, then just imagine what it was like to actually feel chi. Again, a concept or prana, a concept that no one had described to me before, but that perhaps because the experience of being embodied was so um, new or, or just returning for me as uh, an early teenager, it was undeniable. And so I got into a routine of going down to the beach and doing the Qigong exercises that I knew and had my initial sort of spiritual experiences of feeling connected with the ocean, raising my arms and having a wave crest and lowering my arms and having it crash um, and just developing my worldview. Then, of course, running and doing Qigong back. Until one day, a friend of mine who is today actually a running coach in Israel uh, said to me that he took a yoga class in one of the back then early 90s uh, only studios in Tel Aviv in Israel and I said oh I've heard of yoga I'm really curious and he showed me what he learned in class and I began integrating asana into my qigong and running daily practice my idea of asana at the time which actually served me well in the long run was to try to hold the poses for as long as I could uh, before going on my run, also afterwards, after coming back. Uh, so for a few years, I would just practice what he would occasionally show me that he did. And uh, eventually, I, thanks to a lot of my escape into books and musical instruments, I got a full ride to a college in Los Angeles and got out and went to school. And it was there that I met, uh, met my first teacher, uh, Joey Huynh who's a physical therapist in Los Angeles. Uh, he was immersed a lot in the Iyengar tradition, but while I knew him, he also started uh, studying and became very immersed in the shadow yoga tradition. Uh, and I followed him into both schools, and he also recommended that I study with some of his teachers. And from there, it continued. I uh, learned a tremendous amount from the Iyengar system and if I could even say so, even more from the shadow yoga system. Uh, follow Joey to Berkeley uh, unintentionally. I actually got into a doctoral program at UC Berkeley when he moved from LA to Berkeley to teach, studied with him for another four years. And eventually when Joey went back to LA, um, I did a teacher training that he helped me choose and uh, he, recommended me and I ended up uh, teaching a lot of his classes, which uh, at a basketball gym at Berkeley uh, were over 80 strong oh my. sometimes. And these are people that a month earlier before my own immersion training, I was practicing with. 
Uh, and interestingly enough, in the front row, you had some professors and graduate students that had been doing Ashtanga and Iyengar for 10 to 20 years. And in the back row, you had uh, exchange students from other countries who weren't exactly sure what left or right meant. And uh, of course, with 80 something people, I'm on a, I'm on a podium with uh, a microphone and an assistant. Uh, you can't touch everyone. And I actually credit that for quite a bit of my style of teaching now. Uh, and why I also enjoy teaching online, teaching on video so much. I had to cultivate a language that brought as many people as possible as quickly as possible, no matter where they were in their practice, first of all, to a safe place that's anatomically right, and secondly, to a place that's useful. Because in yoga, as I think we all know, it is that edge. It is learning to, to be soft at the edge, to calm ourselves at our physical and even more importantly, emotional and mental edges that we grow and refine ourselves. So uh, I have had some great teachers since, but perhaps the opportunity of being thrown in the deep end and teaching Joey's classes, which during my tenure there grew to be sometimes 120 strong. That sounds uh, like that sounds like maybe your best teacher right there. Yes. To have that divergent group of people and to have to be precise and clear and safe and not kind of wander off into euphemism and uh, flowery stories because you had right. people who wanted to get on with it and the people in the back were saying, what does right mean and what does left mean? And, certainly, certainly. You know. and, and I had some people come up to me and say, wow, that's so beautiful, but can it be more challenging? And, and I think some of them have regretted it since. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, am a, I am a yoga therapist, so I, I do believe in gentleness, but that doesn't mean that the practice shouldn't be challenging. It's a challenge, of course. Right yeah. yeah. I have uh, seen in your writings that you talk about one of the things that you're teaching your teacher training is that universal principle of alignment. Yes. And, and I think that all the Anya Sara people's ears perked up. Right. And they're wondering, are these those same principles of alignment or are these different? And if so, talk about your, uh, the iteration where you got those principles from and um, I, th I think that the, the service of the principles of alignment in Anyasara was certainly to winnow down a lot of Iyengar principles into a few simple. That's right. That's uh, right. So having studied from Iyengar teachers for so much of, uh, you know, more than the first decade of my practice, I'm in my third decade of practice now. Uh, certainly none of the principles that I have outlined contradict anything from the Iyengar school. Mm -hmm. And to the best of my understanding of the Anusara principles, nor do they contradict those. Uh, there are some uh, physical expressions that I have witnessed in certain Anusara teachers that uh, I felt contradict uh, some of these principles that uh, to me are anatomically defined. Uh, so I'm not 100% sure, but I think Anusara students or people who enjoyed that 
would very much enjoy and benefit from the Tantravaya iteration of the principles. And the way that I came to discover to, for myself, of course, uh, these principles is in many ways also the way that I came to discover yoga therapy. Uh, as a fairly young teacher, as a fairly new teacher, uh, I was teaching at a studio in Berkeley. I became the director of teacher training there. And um, a student of mine who was in her 70s at the time and is now in her 80s and still comments on my Facebook and Instagram posts, uh, a lifelong ballet dancer, beautiful practitioner, she came up to me and she said, I think you're a great teacher. I want to do private lessons with you. And I thought, I, I don't know what we would do in a private lesson. And I don't know what, what I would charge for it. And she said, well, I want 10 lessons and I'll give you this much money. And it was way too much in my opinion at the time. And so I felt inspired to give her more than just a yoga class for one. Mm -hmm. I felt inspired to find out what were her particular needs. And through the curiosity of seeing, oh, why is it easier for you to square your hips forward in warrior one with one foot forward than with the other foot forward? Um, I became more and more interested in the causes of alignment and misalignment in the body. And since I think it's no secret that most yoga trainings are light on anatomy, to, to be kind, um, I did a lot of self-teaching. Mm -hmm. And I went and studied a lot. Uh, which again, all my years of reading far too many books as a child prepared me well for that. And as I was beginning to understand the, the physical structures that determine mobility and range of motion and alignment and misalignment in the body, with time, I started both to be able to outline uh, a realignment therapy technique, which involves isolating particular muscles in order to manipulate the bone structure back into balance through increasing the number of dendrite connections in the brain map for that region. I could talk about that as well if you're interested. Uh, but for our purposes and for your question today, I was able slowly over time to begin to see that the um, antagonistic structures of the body, that the groups of antagonistic musculature made it so that all right action in the body, and especially in asana, but really in all kind of physical activity, can be articulated as pairs of opposites. And as I was winnowing this down and understanding more and more what it was that was universal and what it was that was actually necessary, uh, there was a lot of, of challenge there to figure out, well, you know, some people do better when they really focus on pulling the femur heads back, on pressing the upper thighs back like you would in, say, a downward-facing dog. Mm -hmm. While other people, if they do that, there is hyperlordosis in the lower back, the tone in the abdomen is lost, the belly uh, spills forward, and for them, lifting the pit of the abdomen in every pose seems to be so much more effective. And I was having even some gentle loving conflict with fellow teachers on that where, you know, teachers would say, no, the absolute most important thing is that people hug the midline with their feet. While for some people that created inner knee pain and, and took them out of balance. 
And it was especially studying some Ayurveda, which I won't go into in depth right now, but this idea that health or wellness is balance. And that balance is something that if I am to the left of, I am to walk right. And if you are to the right of, you are to walk left. That different things are right for different people at different times. That really challenged me to ask, well, how can we say anything is universal? But it was through these pairs of opposites. It was through understanding that every action can be described as roots and wings. Something that moves in one direction, and from that anchoring, something else that moves in another direction, and thus creates spaciousness, or sukham in Patanjali's language, but also engagement and stiram in our asanam, stability and strength, mm. well-spaced strength that we not only are able to achieve perfect alignment in every body, in every pose, or even every active gesture, but we're able to infinitely respect and account for individual differences. Because for everybody, in every different pose, at different times, we all need both the action that is rooting and the action that is spreading wings. But depending on the individual person and the individual pose and the time of life and the time of day and so on, some of us will need to turn one action more up and the other action a little bit less or vice versa. But it allows to bring us all to balance. At first, I came up with 13 actions. Uh, but then little by little, I understood that uh, they can all be defined as eight actions as I was beginning to see them in a more three-dimensional way. Those eight opposite actions were then organized into four pairs of oppositional uh, or antag productively antagonistic actions. And ultimately, I was even able to see that the two pairs in the lower body are mirrored perfectly by the two pairs in the upper body, uh, as above, so below, as it were. Mm -hmm. And so uh, to not to winnow down, certainly not to dumb down, but to give practitioners a reliable, consistent, easy to remember and understand pair of principles, pair of oppositional actions, that if we just keep those in mind, no matter what we're doing in asana or any physical, actively uh, physical gesture, brings us to safety and gives us the direction in which to apply right effort has proved tremendously helpful, not only for my students, but also for the teachers that I'm training. Uh, I recently finished a training on the big island of Hawaii and next month I'm doing one uh, on Oahu Island. But from this uh, uh, big island training, like I usually do, we have a, a closed Facebook group, a private Facebook group where people can share and ask questions and People can answer and I can answer and people share experiences. And one by one over the weeks and months that have passed since that uh, November 2017 training, one by one of them is writing, I just taught my first public class. I was terrified. I thought that I couldn't do it. But then eight principles, four pairs of opposites. Uh, I couldn't teach badly. I couldn't help but teach well. And the wonderful thing is even new teachers are relaying to me that 
um, experienced practitioners and even experienced teachers are coming to them and saying, well, I really benefited from that. I really learned something. I'm going to use that. And uh, for me, it's incredibly satisfying and fulfilling to be here. So your um, eight principles, you would call them the Tantravaya eight principles, which is the four opposites. Yes. I think I get in theory what you're yes. talking about, but maybe if you could take a pose, say, Tadasana. Sure. And universally align. <laughs> you got it. We have you universally align something very simple like Tadasana so that sure. we can understand a little bit more in uh, practical terms. It, okay. it, it, it sounds very beautiful what you're saying, but I would wonder what does that look like on the mat? Sure. So first, a disclaimer and an anecdote, if I may, which are the same one. Okay. Uh, in one of my previous trainings, I overheard one of my students talk to her partner over the phone and say to him something like, ah, of course, I could only hear her part of the conversation. It went something like, yeah, yeah, honey, no, we're, we're on day five of learning to stand, <laughs> just standing. No, I can't. It's, it's actually fascinating. I, I can't explain it. I, <laughs> it's really interesting. I'm learning so much. So, of course, I'll, I'll, I'll try my best right now in as short a time as we have. Okay. But yes, let's put it this way. Building from the feet up. If we all stand with our feet parallel, almost outer feet parallel, so it's actually the center of the feet parallel, and reach down through the roots of the big toes, so anatomically based on the first metatarsal, where the peroneus longus muscle attaches. So not the actual big toe, but the cushion behind it. If we press that into the ground, it turns the thighs a little bit more in than out. It gives us feeling of width in the SI joints. So the actual posterior iliums or the backsides of the side bones of the pelvis move away from each other. Mm -hmm. And that allows for what we call counter-nutation, the pelvis tilting a little bit back. That both stabilizes and puts a tremendous amount of space, though subtle, in the lower back. And then when we balance that, we talked about pairs of opposites, right? Uh, of course, if we overdo that, it'll put pressure on the inner knees. That's kind of like the hug the midline principle, yeah? But then if we, while keeping weight pressing through the inner feet, the roots of the big toes, lift the inner thighs up and away from each other, almost smiling from the inner knees to the outer hips. And we balance those two actions for my body in this pose in this moment. We find that many of the most important muscles of the legs turn on, that the legs lengthen and the whole body becomes a little bit taller and longer as a result and that the kneecaps align pointing in the same direction as the toes. So stability, safety, spaciousness. Now, most of us tend to stand with the hips forward of the ankles. So not just a, a, an anterior pelvic tilt, which some of us are actually more tilted posteriorly, but a pelvic anteriority. Yeah, standing with the hips forward of the ankles, a, a kind of anxious on our toes kind of uh, feeling. Mm -hmm. So if we do what we do say in a downward facing dog here, 
and take the upper thighs back, pulling the femur heads. We've already pulled them apart in the hip socket, which gives them more space to move back by lifting from the inner knees to the outer hips. Now we pull the upper thighs back and there's so much more space in the hip socket and the center of the hip aligns above the knees, above the ankles, allowing for a clearer flow of energy, greater stability, and more mobility for whatever it is that we're going to do next. But if we are somebody who has a tendency towards um, an anterior pelvic tilt, a, a hyperlordosis, too much arch in the lower back, that would actually accentuate it and encourage a turning off of the abdominal muscles. So we balance that by its opposite, lift the lower belly. I find lift the lower belly to be a lot more effective than suck the gut in. Yeah? It gives us length and spaciousness in, in addition to strength and stability. So again, sukham stiramasanam in Patanjali's language. Mm -hmm. We can follow that lift all the way up to, you know, most teachers will talk about the crown of the head. I like to go to the place that's actually the closest we can be from outside to where the skull meets the spine, which is right behind the ears. So you think of the bones behind the ears. You look at a skeleton, the very back of the head is pretty far back behind the spine, but the bones behind the ears are right above the top of the spine. If you think of lifting from the bones behind the ears, kind of like sliding the back of your head up a wall, you can imagine what that does to your tadasana, right? Mm -hmm. All the way from pressing the balls of the big toes down, reaching the bones behind the ears up. You see how that's actually a mirror action? Mm -hmm. It gives length throughout the whole spine. The downside is that if we have any tendency to stick the floating ribs forward, which I've even heard some teachers in order to deepen a forward bend or, or lengthen the spine to actually cue or reach the floating ribs forward, which I vehemently disagree with because of the vulnerability of the TL junction or where the upper back meets the lower back there uh, and abusing its hypermobility. So when we lift the bones behind the ears, of course there'll be a tendency to stick the floating ribs out. So its opposite action is absorb the floating ribs or knit the floating ribs down towards each other and in. Or there's lots of ways, of course, to cue the principle as long as we understand the actions. It does actually sound though that the best way to learn the principles is with something like standing still. That's how I teach it. Because there are so many different pieces to this puzzle that you're putting together that yes. if you then added, oh, come into a lateral or do right. a twist. Uh, but so how, how difficult is it for a practitioner to, once you've learned how to stand, <laughs> to learn how to walk or sit or... Infinitesimally you know, easy. <laughs> Infinitesimally easy. You see, five days of six days of learning how to stand and then in the next day, we've done uh, standing back bend, standing forward bend, chair pose, twisting chair, chaturanga, cobra, up dog, down dog, kneeling lunge, high lunge, warrior one, warrior two, and all their variations. It's an accelerating system because once you realize everything that's in Tadasana of these four pairs of principles, or two pairs in the lower body, two pairs in the upper body that mirror each other. Um, and of course, I didn't get to the arms, but that's okay. Uh, all that applies in every other pose as well. Every pose, and like you said in the beginning, in every style of practice, at whatever speed, at whatever intensity. So it doesn't matter so much if my students are going to go teach vinyasa or yin or what have you. It's 
the awareness of the anatomy-based alignment principles and the way that the uh, opposition between the pairs of principles allows for individual differences can allow everybody to quickly and easily, and also without a teacher, learn and properly effectively teach mm-hmm. good poses. Uh, especially because I've spent a lot of, of my recent years traveling the world and teaching. Uh, it's no longer like when I had my studios in California where I have students with me day in, day out for years. For me now, it's about how do I give somebody as much as possible for them to unpack in their personal practice or in their public classes? Uh, how do I give a teacher as much to unpack in their studies and in their teaching going forward? And it's these principles of alignment and how to then study each pose as a special case of them that have proved most effective in that. I used to teach or talk about dozens, if not hundreds of poses in a teacher training. Now, I find that it's enough to take two dozen poses as special cases, if that. And eventually, by the end of training, I can ask any of my students, okay, pick a pose, any pose, one we've never talked about not a traditional pose or to whatever you want. Okay, what do you need to know to teach it? And as they consider that, they realize eight principles, nothing else. It's all special cases. It's all just a relationship to gravity and individual differences, which are already in the pairs of opposites. Uh, and I, I think we've gotten some, a lot of uh, an idea of the eight principles but is it possible to say them in a sentence hmm. or is it, it sounds uh, like a very layered system. Like there, there's a lot to each of those eight principles. I think your question touches on what I was saying earlier that principles are universal and cues are infinitely creative. So, right. So we can actually talk in a very, very, very low resolution. Mm -hmm. And yes, uh, in a very long run-on sentence, I could give you all eight. (laughs) Um, Or we could spend uh, 800 or 1,000 hours of training, as I do with my students, talking about those eight principles. But yeah, if you uh, stand with your feet parallel under the sit bones, press into the roots of the big toes while lifting the inner thighs up and away from each other, draw the upper thighs back and reach the sit bones down or lift the lower belly, And from that lift, follow and lift all the way through the back of the head or the bones behind the ears while keeping the floating ribs in the back body. With the palms facing into the sides of the body, press as though into a resistance so that without actually changing the wrists, when you spiral the upper arms out, the chest opens and blossoms without the actual heart leaning forward, but can rest in the back and the ribs rest in the back body, creating a free and peaceful flow of energy with strength and stability in the body. That was the really long run-on sentence. That was a beautiful sentence. (laughs) I'm only wanting now, because I'm a little greedy right now, but I'm wanting to ask you about a breath. Mm. Uh, Clearly, this is a, what you're describing is a fairly physical Phenomena, but I have a feeling that it has a lot of all of the koshas are going to be uh, in there somewhere. So, can you tell me a little bit about how this application 
touches some of the other sheaths. Absolutely. So uh, I'm glad you mentioned the koshas because that's where I usually go to explain this. So we've been talking indeed on the level of anamaya kosha, the flesh body. Mm -hmm. And I always tell my students and the teachers that I train, even though I try to be as available for everybody as much as I can post trainings and, and in social media and so on, that they don't need me because they can always ask pranamaya kosha. If you do something in your body, and it, it could be seductive, like the cue to press your heels down and lift your sit bones in a down dog, which I vehemently disagree with for anybody. Uh, it can be very seductive because, wow, feel that stretch in the backs of my knees. That's got to be good, right? Uh, if you then check what it did to your breath, where, how deep in your body, how even between right and left, how even between uh, front and back is your breath, then pranamaya kosha will reveal to you the truth and reveal to you what is a pose that's actually, or a gesture uh, or an action that's taking you in the right direction for yoga. So indeed, when we uh, balance drawing the upper thighs back and lifting the lower belly, when we balance lifting the back of the head while pulling the floating ribs back, what we do is we create space for the respiratory diaphragm to descend into the abdominal cavity. So the abdominal cavity is a hydraulic system. It's a closed uh, liquid system. And then you've got the um, thoracic cavity, which is a pneumatic or gas pressure system, which is linked directly to the atmosphere of the planet. When we are able to allow the uh, hydraulic system of the abdomen to compress vertically from top to bottom and expand laterally to the sides and front and back, kind of like a kidney breath, we give space for the respiratory diaphragm, or precisely the um, uh, central tendon of the respiratory diaphragm to which all of its fibers connect, to descend down towards the abdominal cavity, pulling the lungs into spaciousness, and through a magical gift of physics, drawing pressure, air pressure, from the atmosphere of the planet, from the mother, into us. In a way, we've never taken a breath before. There's no need to take a breath. We just create the right conditions, and the mother gives. So for me, all of this emphasis on, on anamaya kosha, on the flesh body, is actually the right place to begin, which doesn't mean that at some point, oh, now we're enlightened, we don't need that anymore. We begin, that, we begin with that in every gesture. We begin with that, I believe, to the day that we die and beyond, we create the right conditions to be given to. And as we are given to and overwhelmed with the generosity of life, we can stop doing yoga, begin to receive yoga, and through being overwhelmed and overabundant to give yoga, whether we teach or just live as an example. And that's what we're all striving for. Let me not in the very least claim to be a master in this. I'm only a student, but I'm grateful for what I've been able to articulate for myself and for my students. I feel like uh, there's a lot more that you have to say, and luckily, <laughs> you will be saying a lot more because you've developed a course for Yoga You Online, and I think your uh, it's called Anatomy of Perfect Alignment, 
for everybody every time. So I think you'll be going into more detail about these principles, but tell us about it and who should take it and what they will get from it. Thank you, Lynn. Yes, of course. Uh, in fact, we are doing two courses, each of which is divided into two parts. So there will be uh, two separate hours of study and an hour of practice applying what we've learned. First course focused on the lower body, second course focused on the upper body and full body integration. Um, so in these courses, I go in depth to the best of our ability in a few hours. Again, it's, it's a much higher resolution than say what we talked about today, still a lower resolution than of course a, a 300 or 500 training. Sure. Uh, but to the best of, of our ability in that time, I go through the how and the why. So what are the anatomical structures that determine the universality of the principles in the body? How do we apply them correctly in our bodies? How do we balance the pairs of opposites? And so in the first part, <clears throat> we learn about the feet and the legs and how to activate in a way that creates spaciousness, strength, and stability, as well as balance for me in this pose, whatever the pose is. In the second part, we go into the pelvis and the core. So, and I think of the core as anything from the floating ribs to the backs of the knees, right? The hamstrings being a very important participant in core activation. And we learn about that um, and integrate that into complete lower body actions all the way from the ground to the respiratory diaphragm. In the second course, we go from the respiratory diaphragm up after a thorough review of the lower body, learn about the proper use of the hands and arms, the muscles in the uh, thoracic region and the neck and, and shoulders, uh, how to keep ourselves safe when bearing weight on the arms, uh, applying the principles, uh, finding lightness, and beginning to find the magic of the gifts of yoga. We talk about uh, such qualities as levitation or being in more than one place at once. I think that those qualities begin with our ability to create a lot of space in our bodies uh, and hence in our breaths and hence in our minds such that we become increasingly light. Uh, and I love that in English, light is both a, a quality of, of mass and a quality of the massless photon, right? The quality of, of perhaps enlightenment, as we would say. Uh, and to be able to expand our consciousness through our understanding of the body until we are able to experience all consciousness as one, of course, the stated claim or goal of yoga. So uh, uh, I, I do not claim that if you take my yoga online courses, you will be enlightened, levitate, and be in more places than one. Uh, but I think it'll take all of us closer in that right direction. So we're not going to be able to fly then at the end? No guarantees. <laughs> let's, just say, let's just say results may not be typical. <laughs> results will vary. <laughs> results will vary. And yet, and yet, there is a universal depend, dependability in the form and in the principles. Well, Shai, this has been fascinating. I thank you so much for taking us through some of your principles, and I'm looking forward to checking out your course when it is ready. Thank you. Lynn. Thank you. And for Yoga You Online, thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you again very soon.